Thank you very much. It's good to know that we have a great Father, a great God, especially when things are so difficult in so many ways. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 1. And you may have noticed in the bulletin, I mentioned the fact that we're going to begin going through books again. Uh, This year, I've spent a lot of time just selecting passages and trying to expound those passages to make application to all the kinds of things that are going on in the country and in the church and in the world. Uh, In a sense, we're going to continue doing that, but we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go through the book of Acts we're also going to go through some other books at the same time. We're going to go through the book of Daniel, 1 Corinthians, and Revelation. And so we're going to go through it a little faster than I normally do, because um, I can take time, and I, I'm not going to do that this time. But the, the question that we're going to be answering from all these books, uh, to one degree or another, is how are we to live to please God, which is what we talked about last week. How are we to live to please God in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christianity, and increasingly pagan in its perspective on life. I've been watching some things that are going on in Australia right now, which is really interesting. If you've seen any of that, Uh, evidently they have a lockdown going on. It's a very severe lockdown. Uh, You're not able to leave your home unless you have a good reason to. And so there was one story about how these eight teenagers went to the beach somewhere in Australia uh, late at night, I guess, to watch the uh, sunset and beyond, and they were arrested. They were handcuffed, and they were fined $1,000 apiece for being outside without a good reason. Um, there was this other story about this tweet that went out about this uh, church of 60 people that were meeting, and the tweet called them selfish and arrogant to be getting together under the circumstances. And what's really fascinating about this is that according to reports that the deaths related to COVID in Australia are averaging or have averaged over the last month one and a half deaths per day. One and a half deaths per day out of a population of 25 million people. And they're locking down the country. And they're doing these kinds of things. And obviously, people look at that and say, uh, what's going on? Why are we taking these extreme measures? Uh, Why are they taking these extreme measures? And why are other people arguing for the same kinds of things, even in our own country? Uh, We even have um, a couple in our homeschool group. Um, He's a firefighter in L.A. County. And as we understand it, if he does not get vaccine by Tuesday, he will lose his job. And so those are the kinds of things um, that we're all having to face and make decisions about because of um, a lot of things that are going on. And so obviously, whatever happens, like we said last week, uh, the question we want to ask ourselves is, how do we please God in these circumstances? How do we do what would honor God and be a glory to God in this situation. And we talked about last week that one of the ways we can summarize the Christian life is to talk in terms of, for all those who are in Christ, all those who have repented of their sins and entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus, God is pleased with us. He loves us fully and forever 
perfectly. He's satisfied with us. He's never going to cast us off. No matter what happens, no matter even if the world hates us and wants to cast us off, God will not. And because of that, we are pleased with God because we see in God through Jesus all that we need and all that we desire. And so that even if the world changes and we begin to be in need, our God has not changed. And he is still everything we need and everything our heart longs for and desires. And so we are to testify to that even through these difficult times. And because God is pleased with us through Jesus and we are pleased with God through Jesus, we live to please God above all things. And so uh, we want to continue to ask the question, as those who have been loved and accepted and are being loved by God, how do we please him in light of all that's going on? And so we want to look at that from Acts chapter 1 today and talk um, about that uh, this morning. So let me just read for us Acts chapter 1, and then we'll go from there. It says in verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight." And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren A gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. 
And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he has he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of God. I entitled this message, A Mission for Mamas. And uh, one of the reasons for that is, if you notice in verse 14, one of the people that are mentioned in this chapter is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so whereas we might focus on the apostles, because obviously they are to play a leading role in what's going to be happening in the book of Acts. It doesn't mean that mamas like Mary uh, aren't intimately uh, involved in what the church has been called to do. And so there's a sense in which we need a vision for the Christian life that is just as important and just as relevant for mamas as missionaries, so to speak, as um, maybe plumbers, as to pastors or, or uh, truck drivers, to the theologians. You know, we need a vision for the Christian life that applies to every single person, even though it may not apply exactly the same way. Mary was not called to be an apostle, but she's mentioned in this chapter because she was very much called to be the very thing that Jesus talks about in this chapter, which is a witness to him. What we have in the book of Acts is a history of the early church. And someone has said um, the ancients understood history as the relating of deeds for edification. They didn't write history just to um, be able to fact check people on CNN or something like that. They wrote history in order to edify people. They realized that there was something going on in history that we could learn from. Because if you don't learn from history, you tend to repeat it, as the saying goes. Well, God gives us uh, history uh, so that we'll repeat it. Um, Because he wants to call us through that history to live that way and to be inspired and encouraged by it. So in the book of Acts, we actually see in the first seven chapters, the early church in Jerusalem, Then we see how it expanded into Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 and 9. And then it begins in chapter 9 to talk about the expansion to the remotest parts of the earth as Paul takes the gospel to Rome. Uh, Calvin could talk about the importance of this book by saying, you know, if there was a book that talked about the uh, beginnings of the church, there was a book that talked about how the apostles began to preach the gospel and and what they had to face in order to preach that gospel. If there was a a book that talked about how the early Christians 
as he said it, manfully passed through many um, impediments and how they courageously triumphed over all the pride of the world um, and how God was wonderfully with them. Uh, that would be a good book we ought to value. And he says that's a, what we have in the book of Acts. We have a book that uh, does all those things, describes all those things to us that we might be like that by God's grace. That indeed the Spirit came to enable us to be like them under similar circumstances. And so basically when we talk about missions, not just for mamas or papas, but for all of us, um, Talking about mission is another way of talking about how do I live to please God as someone with whom God is pleased and with some as someone who is pleased with God? How do I live? And an important thing to think through is to realize that Acts is a book that encourages us to see that we have a purpose. We have a specific purpose that's related to the fact that Jesus is king and we're to proclaim that. So if you Think with me a few minutes about what we find in the first 11 verses. We find, for instance, in verse 6, we have the, the apostles asking Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And what Jesus basically says is, it's not for you to know um, about when certain things are going to happen. But at the same time, he basically says, your idea of the kingdom needs to be expanded you're thinking of just the kingdom coming to israel but i want you to know you're going to be my witnesses so that the kingdom expands to the whole world because that's what he says he says um, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And the interesting thing is, as you read through the book of Acts, it took them a while to get that. They didn't immediately understand that they were to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They didn't immediately understand that the Gentiles were going to be a part of the kingdom. And yet that's exactly what Jesus had in mind from the very beginning. And so Jesus says, your mission, and you're going to be leading this, but the mission of the whole church is to be witnesses. And what does a witness do? If, you, if a witness appears in court, what is their job? Their job is to testify. And so the, wit, the uh, mission of the church and every single person that's a part of the church is to testify both in word and deed to the reality of the reign of King Jesus and to the free offer of the gospel. Um, when a witness takes the stand in court, They'll swear something like, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And there's a sense in which that should be my prayer every day. Help me, Father, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. By your gracious help, empower me to do just that, especially in the court of public opinion. Because we're all there in the court of public opinion every day, interacting with people over opinions and viewpoints and world views and testimonies to who is king and who or what will save. And we are called to be testif uh, testifiers to Jesus, to be witnesses to Christ in our 
world. There's all kinds of verses in the Bible that talk along these lines and all kinds of verses in Acts. I'll just highlight a, a few. In Acts 17, it talks about the fact that um, Paul is there and he's preaching and it's stirring up things in Acts chapter 17. And they begin to react negatively to that. And some of them um, arrest a man named Jason who was involved in what Paul was doing. And they testify in verse 7 about Jason and the other Christians. And they say they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they were known by the unbelievers as those people who were going around saying there's another king. Caesar isn't the only king. In fact, he's not the greatest king. There's a king of kings, and his name is Jesus. So that the testimony was <clears throat> in light of Acts chapter 1. What happens in Acts chapter 1? When Jesus says, Caught up into heaven, where does he go? He goes to the right hand of the Father. He goes to the throne of the universe. And he sits down on the throne of the universe as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the early Christians weren't just giving out the four spiritual laws, so to speak. They were telling people, Jesus has been enthroned as king. Remember that guy, Jesus, who went around healing and preaching and teaching, and they crucified him? You know where he is now? He rules and reigns over everything. He is king. And you need to bow to King Jesus. That's what the early Christians talked about. That was part of their testimony was that there is a new king on the block. A new king on the throne, so to speak. He is the God-man Jesus. Um, At the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28... It says that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was proclaiming the kingdom. You can't proclaim the kingdom without proclaiming who the king is of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a king, and Jesus is that king. In Acts 16, there's the familiar story of the um, the jailer who, after the earthquake... Uh, comes in to Paul and Silas and asks, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you want to turn to 1 Kings 20, feel free to do that. There's an interesting story in 1 Kings 20 where um, Israel defeats the king of Aram. And the king of Aram survives the battle And some of his uh, people tell him something that they hope will enable him to escape death. I think it's in verse 31 where it says, His servant said to him, this is the king of Aram who's just been defeated by the king of Israel. Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. Note that the kings of Israel had a reputation. And what was the reputation? That they were merciful kings. A king in his realm had the right to kill you or keep you alive. 
And if one king defeated another king in battle, he had the right to kill you or keep you alive. Jesus is king of kings. He's king of the universe. He has the right to kill or keep alive. The good news is he is a merciful king. If you come to him for mercy, he will have mercy on you. He's not eager to kill. He's eager to show mercy. He's that kind of king. And so that's the kind of king we proclaim. We proclaim a king who has the authority to take life and give life. But he's a king that's merciful. Indeed, he's a king that went to his throne via the cross that he might show mercy to sinners. And so we're called in the scriptures to be salt and light. We're called in the scriptures to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. And in doing that, we are to proclaim the kingship of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus as king. Um, We've told the story, remind you of the story many times of um, in Narnia when uh, the uh, children are learning about Aslan and Susan asks about Aslan the lion, and they say Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, and she asks the question, is he quite safe? Because she's a little afraid, and the beaver, Mr. Beaver says safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In the day and time in which the book of Acts was written, and earlier, Kings were very common, not so common today. But everyone understood that a king was a fearful person. He was a person who could kill you or keep you alive. A king was not necessarily a safe person. But if they were good, if they were merciful, then there was hope, right? And so Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, the great king, the king of kings, It's not safe. You can't play around with him. You can't act like you can do anything and escape from his just judgment. But know that he's good. Know that he's merciful. And he says, I tell you, he's the king. I testify to you, he's the king. You may not think he is. You may not see how he is. But he is. And that's our testimony to a, a world that looks at Jesus and doesn't see in him kingship. And doesn't see in him saviorhood, but we are to tell them that's who he is. That is what he is. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we think in terms of, I have a king? Because if I think in terms of, I have a king, then that means my king has given me orders. Just like being in the military. You have a mission and you have orders that you're meant to follow. And that's what we find in the, in the first chapter of Acts is there's a king and he's given orders to all those in his kingdom. And we are to follow those instructions. We're to follow the mission. We're to, we're to pursue the mission. Um, and the question is, do I think in terms of having a king when I get up in the morning, one way or the other, whether I use that term or not or think of that term or not, And do I think of myself as having a mission every day? A mission to testify in word and deed to the kingship of Jesus, 
and the mercy of Jesus. There's a story in the Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Gandalf are talking, I'm sure you may remember, where Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And he's talking about all the things that are going on and the need for this ring to be destroyed and him to be a part of all that and how hard it was. He says, you know, I just wish things weren't the way they are. How many of us could say that today? Gandalf's response is, so do I. And so do all who live in such times, which is be us. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We don't get to choose the times we live in. We don't get to choose the story we're a part of. But we are to decide what we're going to do. And we've been given orders. We've been given direction. We've been given a mission. We have a life mission. We have a life message that we are to proclaim. There's a story in the history of the church in the second century, a man named Polycarp. Uh, If you would turn to Luke 21, um, a man named Polycarp, he was the Bishop of Smyrna, which is in present day Turkey where um, Claudia was visiting. And uh, they were persecuting the church in that day and time. And Polycarp uh, got up, caught, got caught up in this persecution. And, um, Interestingly enough, he was arrested and he was brought to um, an arena. Let me just read for you um, these verses first as a context. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13 of Luke 21, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Whatever you're going through right now is an opportunity for your testimony. Whatever you're going through, physically, relationally, whether you're being persecuted or not, whatever suffering, whatever challenges, whatever seasons of life you're in, it's all an opportunity for testimony. Testimony to King Jesus. Testimony to the free offer of the gospel. Free forgiveness in Jesus. It's an opportunity for testimony. And that's exactly what happened for Polycarp. He's brought into this arena where there's a big crowd of people. And he's ordered by the proconsul to um, say, um, death to the atheists. And they called Christians atheists. They called Christians the haters of mankind. And he was calling him to deny his Christianity. And what he did was he looked around and he said, death to the atheists. Meaning all the people up in the stands who were worshiping pagan gods. And he said, I'll give you one more chance. Don't you know that I can release wild animals upon you that will tear you apart? He says, you know what, bring them on. It's okay. I'm not going to reject the good to embrace the evil. He says, don't you know that I can burn you at the stake? He says, don't you know there's a hell in which you will burn forever? I may burn for a moment, but if you remain ungodly, you will burn forever. 
He was giving testimony to the truth. Giving testimony to the truth. And as the story goes, as he walked into the arena, he heard a voice from heaven. The voice said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Play the man means be courageous. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't be afraid. Maintain your testimony to the truth, to the end. Play the man. And so finally, the man says, reject Christ, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And he was an old man, and so he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He testified to the kingship of Jesus. He testified to the merciful, saving place of Jesus. He testified to the very thing that Jesus said we're to testify to. Jesus is king, but he's a merciful king for all those who will entrust themselves to him. If you would look at uh, John 18. John 18 is interesting because Jesus, toward the end of his life, before he's going to be crucified and then resurrected, appears before Pilate. And he says some interesting things about why he was born and why he came in verse 37 to Pilate. Verse 37 says, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? He didn't receive Jesus' testimony. But Jesus affirmed that he was a king, and he said he was born and came into the world to testify to the truth through his life, through all that he did, through all that he said, even to the point of dying on a cross. He was testifying to the truth. The truth truth of our desperate need as sinners for a Savior, the truth that God is merciful and will actually rescue sinners from their sin. Testifying to the holiness of God, the justice of God, the love and mercy of God as well. And Acts tells us that we've been born again and we've been brought into the church to testify to King Jesus and to testify to the truth that we are all sinners and if we don't repent, we will likewise perish, as Jesus said. But Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners and he's the highest authority in the universe and so if you come to him for mercy, no one can keep you from it. No one can keep you from it because he is king over all. Well, the second part of the chapter talks about the fact that in light of the fact that we have a king and we have a mission, we fulfill that mission by obeying the word of God. We are to read and follow the directions that we have. We see in the latter part of the chapter where after Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they do that. They go into the upper room and they pray and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And there were about 10 days between the time that Jesus went back to heaven and the Holy Spirit came. So they're in the upper room during that time. They're praying. And in the process of that, 
Peter is led to do something. He's led to apply verses from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And he says, we need to do something. We need to replace Judas. And so that's what we find happening. We see where he says in uh, verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He goes on in verse 20 and says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let us, excuse me, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. And he argues that the 12 needs to be restored. The 12 of 12 witnesses to the resurrection need to be restored. So Judas left that office, left that position, turned his back on Christ, betrayed Christ, was now dead. And Peter says, in light of what the scripture says, we need to um, find someone else to take Judas' place. And so they, they cast lots. And evidently, the way they probably did that was they wrote those two men's names on two different stones, put them in a bag or a vessel, and shook it up and either pulled it out or threw them out and, and saw which one came out first. And whichever one they pulled out first or came out first was the one that God had chosen. Now, that's the last time that we see them using lots in the New Testament. That's not the ongoing practice. After the Holy Spirit comes, people pray and God leads them through the word and by the Holy Spirit. But at this point, they use that and they follow orders in that way. Backing up again, I've mentioned, uh, it says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Jesus goes to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles. So there's a connection between the orders that are being given to the church and the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in verse 16, uh, Peter says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David in the book of Psalms. So that the Holy Spirit is speaking through the word of God and leading the church through the word of God. That's how they are understanding uh, God's leading and how they are to fulfill their marching orders. They understand it's going to be through the word of God. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And then he goes on to talk about uh, those who build their houses on the rock and those who build their houses on the sand. And he says, those who build their house on a rock are those who hear my words and do them. Those who build their lives on the sand are those who hear my words but don't do them. And so how do you know what the will of the Father is? It's the word of God. And following the word of God is how we fulfill the marching orders that we have. That's why Martin Luther Luther could say, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. If you want to know what God wants you to do, pick up your Bible. Because that's that's the word of the Holy Spirit. Those are the orders of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. He went on to say, Martin Luther did, for God wants to give you his spirit only through the external word. 
And so there's a lot more we can say about that. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the importance of the Word of God and and how we need to keep that in mind. Uh, But in light of the time, we won't go there again. But I want to make a couple of different um, applications as we wrap up this morning. And one of the applications that I want to make is I want to talk about something that's not easy to talk about. And that is, how are we to think about people leaving the church? In Acts chapter 1, what we find going on here, and sometimes it's just helpful to think about what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't talk about how the apostles felt about what Judas did. Other than saying he got what he deserved and what he did was wrong. But can you imagine? They lived for about three years with this man, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And it says that he had his part in this ministry. It wasn't like Judas was on the the outskirts of the ministry and they were looking at him and saying, why doesn't he ever do anything? He was very much a part of everything that went on. In fact, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, what if he's going to betray me? And they looked around and said, who? It wasn't like they said, it's got to be him because he can't do anything. He doesn't have a heart at all for what we're doing. He, he's, he's just been goofing around these last three years. He's, he's not like us. No, he was very much a part of the, the ministry. So um, if we put ourselves in their shoes, they had to be a little uh, confused, a little hurt by the fact that Judas could do what he did. Not even a little bit. had to be major league uh, hurt by that. And so I want to talk about this in this context, not to imply that everybody who leaves the church is like Judas, because they're not. But I'm say, what I'm saying is we all can feel similar things like what I believe the apostles and the others felt in light of what Judas did, and we need to respond like they did in light of the scripture. What does the scripture say about how we're to handle what went on? There's a lot we can say, but I'm just going to try to bottom line it for us in light of our time. The Bible tells us that every Christian should be a part of a local church. There shouldn't be Christians that aren't a part of a church, but not everybody's going to be part of the same church. That's just the reality of the situation. And therefore, we should expect that people are going to leave churches at different times for various reasons. Most of us here probably have left the church at some point in our life for one reason or another. The interesting thing is you can't find a passage in the New Testament that tells you anything about uh, what to do if you're thinking about leaving a church or how to leave a church or anything like that. It doesn't specifically address that. Why not? Well, I think part of the reason is that it emphasizes being devoted to one another. But it doesn't imply that you can never leave a church. It just emphasizes the fact that um, God wants us to love each other in ways that would cause us to stay together uh, the whole time, unless there are good reasons not to. And so um, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But let me just go back to the apostles and the struggles they may have had. Why is it so hard when people leave a church? Um, because there are deep connections. We're part of a body. You cut off your hand, it hurts. Uh, we're part of a family. 
if divorces happen or other things happen, it hurts. And when you love people, it can hurt. And so um, you, can, you can always feel uh, different kinds of feelings like abandonment or rejection or you wrestle with questions like, what does this mean for us? Or what does this mean for them? You know, what does it say about us? What does it say about them? Um, and so there's a sense in which we should not be surprised under the best circumstances, when we understand why they have to leave, we still grieve over that. We hurt over that because of the nature of the body. But why do people leave churches? Well, it's true that some people aren't Christians and they walk away like Judas. That's true. But there are many other reasons why people leave. Sometimes uh, external circumstances require it, like people die. That's an external circumstance. Or um, in the book of Acts, it talks about persecution, and they're driven apart. So you can leave a church because of external circumstances. Um, It could be a job change, and you move out of state, things that, in a sense, you may not have a whole lot of control over. It could be a decision of wisdom that says, you know what, I think it's the wise thing to do. We need to find a church that's a little closer to us, My work schedule keeps me from going to this church conveniently anymore, so I need to find uh, another church that I can go to in light of my change in work schedule. Um, There can be differences on ministry philosophy um, and a lot of other things that might be something that we say, you know what, maybe it is the wise thing to do. And I've got scriptures for all these things. I just don't have time to go through it, but I'll give you those and you can look at them and think it through so what i'm saying is there can be uh circumstances beyond our control in a sense and other circumstances where we just think it's wise all things considered um sometimes people leave churches because the church needs to be left uh their mission is off there's there's serious doctrinal error or there's serious moral error in the church That can be a reality. Sometimes the person who leaves, their mission is off. Uh, They're not thinking straight about things. They're they're either maybe in serious sin. uh, Maybe they fall into serious doctrinal error. They've begun to value things in ways that cause them to undervalue where they are. Uh, There may be hurt where they're not willing to reconcile and all kinds of things. And so basically it comes down to it's not always right when a person leaves, but it's not always wrong when a person leaves uh, either. Um, But there are right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it. I'm not going to get into that for time's sake, but let me just conclude by saying, so what do we need to do when someone leaves? We need to listen very carefully. We need to listen and say, you know, are there things we need to understand and learn? Are there things we need to repent of? Is there a reconciliation that needs to happen when somebody leaves? We need to listen and be humble and receive what we can and address what we can. We need to trust God with their leaving, which means in Acts chapter 1, Judas left and they said we need God to to replace this person. In a sense, we need to understand that people are going to leave, but God's going to raise up other people 
in the body to do things maybe that they weren't doing before. And the body will grow as that happens. And so we need not be afraid when those kinds of things happen. Obviously, when people leave, we want to love them and take them at their word and believe the best about them. You know, unless there are, there's evidence to the contrary, we ought to always want to do that. And we want to love them in whatever way is needed. It says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, which means loving someone may involve having some hard conversations with them. But we're always called to love no matter what. And it may look different depending on what's going on in the person's life. If they're in sin, obviously um, loving them will look one way. If they're leaving as a member in good standing and there's no problem, then that's going to look different too. And so, But the goal is love. So like I said, there's a lot to be said about that. But sometimes it's the elephant in the room. It happens in every church. Every church I've been a part of has people coming, coming and going for various reasons. And yet we need to really think about it and make sure that we're seeking to listen and learn. We're seeking to address issues as needed. And we're loving. And so that's what's going on in the book of Acts in some sense. And we need to be aware of that too in, in light of what lies ahead for us um, as things get more difficult in this country, uh, you can expect more and more people to leave the church. And responding to that is how we should be prayerfully thinking in terms of what would be pleasing to God. Now, how can all this be a mission for mamas? This is the other application as I close. And basic, basically it's to say we're to be those who testify to the reign of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus according to our calling. Not everybody is called to be an apostle. Not everybody is called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to be a missionary. But some of us are. Some of us of our children may be. Some of our grandchildren may be. We need to be praying that God would call people into ministry and call people into missions and that they would take their testimony to King Jesus and to the gospel to other places. We should be praying that that happens. And we should consider whether or not God is calling us to do that. But not everybody's going to be called to do that. And we're called to testify to King Jesus and to the gospel right where we are as mamas, daddies, uh, plumbers, truck drivers, whatever we may be. And so... We all have a king and his name is Jesus. We all have a mission, a mission to testify to Jesus in our circumstances. And the Bible helps us to see how that fleshes itself out. And the next time we get to Acts chapter 2, we'll talk more about that. But the good news is, I'll close with, if you've never trusted Christ, uh, Jesus is a merciful king, an able and willing savior. And if we turn from our sin and we entrust ourselves to Jesus, he will receive us and he will love us fully and forever. That's a message to everyone. And that's the message that we need to testify to, even to our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we do have a mission 
in these uncertain days, in these days where we wonder what's going to happen next, we wonder what we'll face next. And we pray that you would help us to see that every opportunity is an opportunity for testimony, a testimony to your kingship, that you rule and you reign. And maybe in certain circumstances we may have to say we must obey God and not men. We must obey King Jesus and not men. Help us also to be ready to say, King Jesus is king, but he's also a merciful king. And he will forgive you of your sins if you will come to him and trust yourself to him. Help us to communicate that, to testify to that in all kinds of ways as we live and move in this season of life. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to celebrate what you've done for us in Jesus. Please prepare our hearts for that even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.